0: Please the court, Sophia Lakin for the appellants. For over 40 years, dozens of federal courts have heard hundreds of Section 2 claims brought by private plaintiffs, including at least 10 in the Supreme Court and at least 18 in this court. In that time, not once has a court denied Private plaintiffs' their day in court because of a lack of a private right of action under Section Two.
1: How many times has that been directly challenged in those cases you just cited?
0: We cite in our briefs at examples of at least ten in our um, our initial brief, and then there are um, another case out of the District Court of uh, District Court in Louisiana um, that we cite in our reply brief, and uh, the just recently there was a District Court decision out of the Northern District of. Georgia that we cite in our 28 J letter. So those are examples. Um, In every of those cases, the court concluded that there was indeed a private right of action to enforce Section 2. Now, are
1: any of those that were actually, that you, were any of those 8th Circuit or U.S. Supreme Court decisions that actually directly had that issue before them and decided it the way you suggest?
0: Your Honor, we would uh, submit that in, in the Roberts v. Ramser case in the front of the Eighth Circuit that the court did determine ultimately that there was, that private, private actors, private individuals who've had their voting rights violated, um, could maintain an action under Section 2, um, in order to vindicate that right. And we, We submit that that decision um, from a panel of this court is binding on this court and is a way to resolve this appeal. In addition, five justices of the Supreme Court in Morris versus Republican Party of Virginia determined that there was, that there is a private right of action to enforce uh, the, the, enforce Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And that because the justices there relied upon the existence of a private right of action to enforce Section 2 in holding that there is also a private right of action to enforce Section 10, that reasoning is part of the holding of this case and likewise uh, would resolve this appeal.
1: You don't think that's – I mean, I think you're making broad claims there. You don't think that's dicta? I mean, if you say – you know, we, we seem to have recognized the cause of action under Section Two and Section Five, and therefore we're going to recognize it under Section Ten. The only holding there is that Section Ten is there's a that there's a cause of action under Section Ten. Am I wrong about that? I mean, it's certainly there's the assumption that's made, but I'm I'm not sure that that's necessarily binding on us. It's very learned dicta for no question about that, but I'm not sure it's binding.
0: Well, Your Honor, um, respectfully, we would submit that whatever that court relies on in order to reach the conclusion that there is a private right of action here under Section 10 in the Morse case is part of the ultimate holding of that case. That is what the three-judge panel um, in the Milligan case uh, in out of Alabama uh, determined and said that as the Supreme Court itself has noted, that that reasoning that allows a court to reach a conclusion is part of the holding and therefore is the holding and binding on the court. But but even if this court believes that what five justices of the Supreme Court said about um, the existence of a private right of action under section 2 is dicta we'd still submit that that should be afforded significant weight here and that is especially true not just because it is Supreme Court uh, Supreme Court dicta but because it is consistent with what every other source of authority here says and tells us about uh, whether Congress intended
2: a private right of action here the textan you, you cited wamser isn't it also dicta in wamser in the sense that in wamser the Ultimate holding was that the losing candidate um, was not an appropriate section two party. Um, that that may have an underlying assumption that there is a private right of action under section two, but I'm dubious as to whether that's a holding,
0: Your Honor. The court in order to reach its conclusion that unsuccessful candidates were not aggrieved parties who could sue under section 2 it first had to determine who were aggrieved parties and in fact the language of the stat, the language of the of Roberts itself says that we hold that only individuals whose voting rights have been violated have the ability to sue under section 2 and that that determination, which the court did not indicate in any way, was an assumption, was, again, necessary to the ultimate conclusion that unsuccessful political candidates whose voting rights had not been so violated
2: were not aggrieved parties with the ability to sue under the act. But the question of whether there was any private right of action wasn't squarely presented in that case, was it? The court addressed in its own words whether or not... uh,
0: whether or not the Voting Rights Act uh, provided an opportunity for unsuccessful candidates to maintain a judicial action to challenge uh, discriminatory voting procedures and ultimately answered that question. That was the question that the the court was itself as it characterized answering. And so in answering that question, it was answering the question of who can maintain a Section 2 private right of action and concluded um, that... Only individuals whose private rights, whose voting rights had been violated, um, had the ability to bring an action under Section 2 and unsuccessful candidates could not. But again, each of these decisions, Morris, Roberts, all of them are, are consistent with the Weight of authority here that demonstrates that there is a private right of action under Section suppose 2. Or can... the, suppose that we
1: conclude that it's sticked, and I want to follow up on, on Judge Grunder's point, which is, um, then what do we do about the fact that for about for the last 10 to 15 years, the Supreme Court has been absolutely crystal clear, has reversed numerous courts that have found implied Bivens actions, implied cause of actions under other statutes, and then the Alexander versus Sandoval decision is very clear about what you need in order to find a cause of action. Do we ignore that and just go back to this learned dicta and kind of pretend that the last 15 or 20 years doesn't happen, or how how do you suggest we approach that?
0: Well, Your Honor, I would say that Sandoval doesn't say that we need to revisit every single uh, case beforehand. It lays out a framework for um, understanding whether or not ascertaining, whether or not there's a private right of action um, to maintain under Section 2. And uh, we would submit that the Roberts case is actually not inconsistent with the Sandoval decision. Um, It very much is focused on what Congress intended and looks to the text Section 3 and who is aggrieved parties in order to answer that question. So um, while Sandoval does uh, say that, that this is the analysis that we should do going forward, the Roberts definitely is consistent with that. But in addition, even if we were to consider the text and structure of, of the, the Voting Rights Act and Section 2 in the first instance, we would find that it satisfies the Sandoval two-part test. The Section 2... Clearly sets forth in plain terms a private right. Uh, It states that it squarely protects against the denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote. As the Northern District of Dakota, as the North Dakota District Court recently stated, it's difficult to imagine clearer or more explicit rights creating language. The along section two, along with uh, sections three and sections fourteen e, together demonstrate that Congress intended that that uh, there is a private remedy to enforce and to vindicate that right.
1: Well, I, I don't disagree with you. Actually, I think the rights the rights creating language is probably fine under, under the Stand of All Decision. I think where you run into problems. Is whether it unambiguously creates a Section Two claim, because it doesn't refer to Section Two at all in Section Three. It says to enforce the voting guarantees of the Fourteenth or Fifteenth Amendment, and then and then moves on. That has three plausible interpretations. One is is it's to enforce the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendment vote dilution claim line of analysis. Another is what Justice Thomas said in his Morse dissent, and a third is your interpretation. So I guess my question for you is: How does this unambiguously create a cause of action for a Section Two violation?
0: We are at least, um, if there's any ambiguity in test, and we would submit that there isn't. Um, at least two of those readings, if not all three of these readings, um, actually point in the same direction. And that's because at least at least with respect to section three and that's be, and that there is a private right of action under section two and if there's any doubt about that then of course we would take a look at the legislative history that is a normal statutory construction that Sandoval doesn't overturn um, and the legislative history here is quite clear but looking at the text of this of section three itself it says as you note um, Uh, the private remedies of Section 3 apply to a proceeding under any statute to enforce uh, voting guarantees of the 14th and 15th Amendment. And I'd like to point to the phrase under any statute here. Um, As the Supreme Court uh, explained in Barnhart, a limiting clause um, should uh, be that is modifying the noun or phrase that it follows immediately. Here in the text of section three, the limiting clause to enforce the voting guarantees of the 14th and 15th amendment immediately follow the word statute, not proceeding. And so the question is whether the statute enforces the voting guarantees of the 14th and 15th amendment, not whether the proceeding does. And here, Section two enforces the voting guarantees of the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments. Now, even putting aside and accepting the the um, defendant's reading of the statute, uh, the a proceeding under Section two is a proceeding to enforce the guarantees of the four, voting guarantees of the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendment, and that is because the very purpose and function of Section two is to as the Supreme Court has recognized in Hibbs, City of Bernie, most recently in the Bernevich decision, to remedy and deter unconstitutional conduct. And so in the 1982, when it amended section two, it did so against the backdrop of unconstitutional conduct that in the words, as, as Bernevich recounts, called for legislative redress. And Congress responded under its enforcement powers um, by amending Section 2 to adopt a standard of liability that incorporates those factors that are similar to circumstances that the Supreme Court deemed probative of unconstitutional conduct, but as the Ninth Circuit explained, did not put Federal uh, judges in the position of having to label public officers as racist. And the, so
1: the nature, I mean, the nature of the claims are different. And I know this because I've had to sit on a three judge redistricting panel. The, the, the jingles claims are sort of more of a, uh, they're, they're just different. They're proven in a completely different way a majority minority district. Whereas a 14th or 15th Amendment claim is proven uh, with discriminatory intent. And so I just wonder, again, whether that 14th and 15th Amendment language uh, limits the possible – narrows the field of possible uh, things to which it could be referring.
0: Um, it, it refers it, – your Honor, it refers; it, it, it limits it only in the sense that we're talking about those statutes that are designed for the enforcement of the voting guarantees of the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendment, and um, we're not talking about other types of actions here. And Congress, and that's the, that textual analysis is consistent with the lead, lead opinion in Morse uh, that asks that question: whether a statute is designed to enforce the voting guarantees of the 14th and 15th Amendment. That is the textual analysis that they have, that they adopted there. And that is, again, precisely what Congress did under its powers to enforce the voting guarantees by proper legislation. I'd like to reserve the remaining of my time for rebuttal. You
3: may do so. Mr. Becker.
4: Thank you, honors, and may it please the court, Jonathan Backer for the United States sorry, Jonathan Backer for the United States. Um, so at the outset I want to say that the issue of whether Section two is privately enforceable never should have come up in this case, because it's not a jurisdictional question. But If this court reaches the question of whether it is privately enforceable, the answer is clear. Yes, it is. And there are three equally viable routes that this court could take to get to that conclusion. First, which uh, my colleague talked about at length, is the precedent. Second, if this court applies the Sandoval framework, there are numerous different textual hooks that that gets to that conclusion, as well as the ratification history. Would would you
3: address how Sandoval should – how we should – Treat Sandoval in our analysis.
4: Yes, absolutely, Your Honor. And so uh, you know, I think there's a Sandoval step zero inquiry, which is, is reasoning of other earlier cases, does it dictate the outcome here? Um, and Sandoval said that, that there's no question that Section 601 of Title VI uh, is privately enforceable because of the reasoning of early, earlier cases, canon, which itself relied on a Fifth Circuit case construing Title VI as having a private right of action which had been ratified by Congress over time. That's very similar here in terms of the um, reasoning of Allen and then Morse and the repeated uh, uh, you know, uh, recodifications of, of, the Voting Rights Act without the court ever, suge- without the Congress ever suggesting that, um, there was not a private right of action. Indeed, saying specifically in the 1982 Senate report that Congress has always intended private enforceability since 1965. But to the more traditional parts of the Sandoval framework. My colleague talked about uh, sections 3 and 14E, which, uh, you know, I think the sequence of events are really important to understanding what Congress's intent was in 1975 when it added the words aggrieved person uh, and uh, prevailing party under the United States to the statute. That was, of course, post-Allen when Allen said that private plaintiffs can bring Voting Rights Act claims in the context of Section 5 because the laudable goal of ensuring that the the 15th Amendment's uh, protections finally were realized would be undermined if private plaintiffs did not uh, have the ability to bring Voting Rights Act claims. So again, that was restricted to Section 5, but the reasoning encompasses all of the Voting Rights Act's substantive provisions. And then when Congress amended the Voting Rights Act in 1975, it said we agree, and then included new language that, that clearly contemplated private plaintiffs bringing uh, uh, pr- uh, claims under the Voting Rights Act, including Section 2. What do you make, though,
1: of the fact that um, there's an explicit cause of action in favor of the Attorney General, but not an explicit – I think be, it's fair to say
4: non-explicit cause of action. You have to go to other
1: provisions and kind of read into it.
4: Yeah, um, certainly. There's not an express private right of action for um, uh, under the Voting Rights Act. I think the reason is because voting rights are traditionally thought of as private rights. And if you look back to the history of Voting Rights Act legislation in the Reconstruction era, uh, the, the uh, voting rights uh, statutes were only enforceable by private plaintiffs. And in 1957, uh, Congress Added uh, a public right of action um, in the Civil Rights Act of 1957, so that the uh, so that the Attorney General could assist in that effort, but didn't mean to withdraw what had always been the case that that private plaintiffs can come to court to vindicate their right to vote uh, under the statutes that Congress has cat, uh, codified. Uh, and it would be odd if um, if. if in expanding voting rights in the 1964 Civil Rights Act um, and then in the Voting Rights Act itself that Congress meant to cut back on uh, on, on private enforcement of voting rights statutes when uh, quite the contrary. It's quite clear from both the text of the statute and the legislative history and the ratification history that Congress always intended private enforcement of voting rights statutes and, in specifically, section two. Does Alexander versus Sandoval require it to be more
1: explicit, though? I mean, or, or are we able to read the tea leaves and say, "Well, does these aggrieved these agreed person references throughout other provisions is good enough to create the cause of action?"
4: Well, Sandoval, of course, doesn't require an express p- right. private right of action. The uh, or we wouldn't need this whole framework for determining whether there is a an implicit private right of action. So, if, uh, you know. No ordinary sc- tools of statutory interpretation govern uh, here. There are, as we discussed, tons of uh, te- textual evidence of Congress's intent to have private enforceability of the statute, and it's confirmed by the ratification history and certainly by the Senate report, the 1982 Senate report, which the Supreme Court in jingle said is the authoritative source of Congress's intent when it comes to Section 2 confirm that. So there are many roads, uh, but they all lead to Rome. They all lead to the conclusion that uh, Section 2 is privately enforceable. And I should add that one of the routes that um, I, I didn't mention earlier is, is 1983, which, if you know, I, I just want to say that if this court does not think that there is an implied private right of action to enforce Section 2, then it should uh, remand to the district court. Uh, for for, uh, uh, the plaintiffs to have their right to amend their complaint to bring a 1983 claim so that this court can decide together whether or not either there is an implied private right of action under Section 2 or whether the statute is enforceable under 1983.
3: And the second you have left, would you address the waiver question?
4: Sure. Uh, So I I think that this issue was waived uh, because... Defendants didn't, uh, didn't raise the private in, uh, right of action. And uh, the Supreme Court's uh, holding in Steelco, uh, coupled with this court's holding uh, in Charleston Housing Authority, showed that private right of action questions are not jurisdictional. Um, and Cross really isn't inconsistent with that. Defendants raised private right of action uh, in Cross and framed it as a jurisdictional issue. And this court said that there was not a private right of action and adopted that framing as a jurisdictional issue. But it wasn't an instance where a court reached out like the district court here did and said, Sue sponte, I'm going to raise this private right of action uh, question. So Cross really isn't inconsistent with that binding
2: authority. Why can't it raise it so long as it gives notice, which it did in this case, Right.
4: It could if it were a jurisdictional issue, um, but the the district court can't dismiss a case sua sponte on a non-jurisdictional issue.
2: Even if it gives notice and, and gives the parties a chance to brief?
4: Um, I, I'm not familiar with how a court could uh, sua sponte raise an issue and dismiss on those grounds, no.
1: A follow-up question, if, if I can, Chief. I was under the same impression as Judge Grunder, but I think there's another issue with your waiver argument, which is that... Um, There's a a request for a preliminary injunction, and the main thing is probability of success on the merits. And I don't know how you could possibly figure out what the probability of success on the merits is without figuring out if there's a cause of action first.
4: Fair enough, and I think the issue here is the dismissal, because plaintiffs, as of right, if if a motion to dismiss were filed, right, plaintiffs, as of right, would have had an opportunity to amend their complaint and bring the claim under nineteen. uh, 83. I mean, Your Honor mentioned that the rights-creating language couldn't be clear here, and so 1983 clearly is a viable route to bring a Section 2 claim. So the problem here is it's really procedural. The plaintiffs never got their right uh, to, their, their opportunity to amend as of right in this case because of the way the district court raised the issue, um, and so it's, it's really the, the dismissal that is the, the, the problem here. Thank you, Your Honors.
3: Thank you, Mr. Baird. Mr. Brawny?
5: May it please the court. On its face, Section 2 provides no right to sue and plaintiffs don't suggest otherwise. In fact, the only provision, as Judge Strauss mentioned earlier, that mentions Section 2 enforcement is Section 12. And that provision only mentions suits by the Attorney General. So to find a private right of action, as plaintiffs just articulated, they have to go looking elsewhere. And they purport to find private enforcement lurking in other provisions of the VRA, indictive from previous cases and based upon assertions about how to make the VRA, in their view, more effective. Well,
3: things aren't lurking when they've been around for 50 or 60 years. Um, it, I, I think your position is that there's been a, a, a change uh, that now uh, the Supreme Court is inclined to view private rights of action differently, and this might be one of those that they might be inclined to, to conclude isn't really a part of the legislation. I think, Your Honor, what I would I mean, say... Because I would ask you, is there a Supreme Court case that has concluded that there is no private right of action in a Section 2 claim?
5: I, I think that's the wrong question to ask, Your Honor. I think the question is... Is, is the there an Court- Eighth
3: circuit case that has made that decision that we would be bound by.
5: There is neither an Eighth Circuit case nor a Supreme Court case that holds that Section 2 is privately enforceable. Um, That means this is an open question. It's been an open question since the court raised it in Bolden when the court said it was just going to assume that Section 2 would be privately enforceable. The court since then has never revisited that issue in a Section 2 case and squarely addressed that issue. But the
3: court clearly has, over the years, at least for purposes of the specific issues before it assumed there was?
5: I absolutely agree, Your Honor. The court has assumed. Um, other courts have assumed. They've alluded, as the exchange earlier highlighted, to several cases where the court, yes, has assumed that Section 2 is privately enforced. So would
3: we be in the position of getting ahead of the Supreme Court, in a sense, and reading their tea leaves or, and saying what they would do in making this decision uh, to declare now that there's no private right of action, the Supreme Court has made clear that it's its prerogative to determine um, its overruling of its prior precedent.
5: So I would agree, Your Honor, if we were actually overruling prior precedent. But but as I, it, the point at the end of the day is there are assumptions. The court has assumed things. Other courts have assumed things. But assumptions are not holding. And assumptions are not binding on lower courts. Instead, holdings are binding. And again, they don't cite a Section 2 case, a holding by the Supreme Court that says Section 2 is privately enforceable. Now, as to the question of you know, which approach you apply, I think Your Honor was, was asking about sort of the, the transition from the Borac line of cases where the court viewed its role as reading reading things into statutes, reading private causes of actions into statutes to make the language that Congress wrote more effective than the language that Congress actually wrote. The court has moved away from that. The court began moving away from that even in the 1970s and 1980s. But in in 2001, there is a very clear break from the Supreme Court, and it says that's not the approach we apply. Instead, we apply Sandoval. We ask whether or not Congress unambiguously conferred a private right of action. That's the case law that's out there. And on an open question like this, where the court has only assumed in the past that there is a private right of action, it assumed it in Bolden, and it didn't revisit it and hasn't revisited it since. When squarely confronted with that issue, as you are here, the, the test that we apply today is Sandoval. And applying Sandoval, I think essentially the other side largely tips its hand by focusing so much on the dicta and mores, really underscores that if Sandoval is the test, they can't prevail.
2: Let's explore whether it's dicta and mores. Um, Justice Stevens and Breyer's statements about Section 2, weren't they necessary to reach the conclusion with respect to Section 10? And if not, why not?
5: So I would begin with the proposition that it's a Section 10 case. It's not a Section 2 case. Um, So references to other sections um, generally aren't going to be treated as holdings because, again, it's a Section 10
2: case. But But if it's it's necessary to the holding, then it could be binding, right? The reasoning – I would actually argue that in that case, Your Honor,
5: it's probably still dicta. But even even assuming, Your Honor, was correct that we treat them as a holding, what I would say is – I don't actually think that it's necessary for either one of them. I think in both cases, really, the logic that's getting applied there is that Allen is controlling, and under Allen, certainly this is more true, I think more obviously true, for Justice Breyer and the the two other justices who are with him, that if we apply Allen's line of reasoning, or again the court viewed its role as making statutes more effective than what Congress wrote, then under Allen, he's suggesting that Section 2, just like Section 5, and and the holding in that case, Section 10, would be privately enforceable. But again, that's a suggestion. For, For Justice Stevens, it's a slightly different analysis. Allen apparently is not sufficient enough on his view. Instead, you need Allen plus Sections 3 and 14 in order to reach that conclusion. So that's a different analysis that's getting applied, but it's still a suggestion. Again, it's not a holding because it's not a case that actually concerns Section 2. Um, So I think it it remains an open question, and I think that's why you have two justices, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch and Brnovich, Um, highlighting that this remains an open question. I'd also add that in Morse, Justice Thomas noted uh, for himself and three other justices that that the court may have inadvertently assumed in past cases that Section 2 was privately enforceable, but the court had never held that. And I, I think that's Justice Thomas highlighting once again that this has remained an open question since Bolden.
1: Um, do you think in these past um, uh, uh, cases, um, that, and do you know whether or not uh, the issue of whether it existed was ever raised? So it's one thing if the court addresses it, but it's another thing if the parties raise it and then, and then address it in the course of the uh, decision as well. Do you know whether it was raised in these other cases?
5: In the context of Section 2, I don't believe that's the case. I'm not 100% sure that having read all the briefs, there, there's a possibility that somebody referenced it, but I don't believe that's the case now, Your Honor. And it's the same thing for the lower court proceedings that they're relying on. I mean, most of those cases, again, involve assumptions about Section 2 being privately enforceable as opposed to the issue being squarely presented and addressed. Even the ones that they point to that that would strongly suggest um, of those lower court cases, it's usually the analysis is a line. Um, it's not really the kind of analysis that's required and understandable about whether or not Congress unambiguously conferred a private right of action. Um, and so I would, I would... Then turn, because I, I think the reliance on precedent really falls apart, it's certainly the reliance on Morse because there's no holding there. As for Roberts, you know, they, I think as, as Judge Grunder was essentially asking, that the holding in Roberts is essentially that an aggrieved person for purposes of Section 3 means voter. It does not mean an unsuccessful candidate. Anything that Robert said beyond that is the definition of dicta. Once you've decided you're not an aggrieved person for purposes of Section 3, the analysis ends. Any argument about Section 3 making Section 2 privately enforceable simply is not an argument you need to address at that point. But even if you thought that you could somehow read back dicta as being a holding, that's where Sandoval comes in. Sandoval postdates Roberts, and Sandoval has made very clear that the approach that we apply is not the approach that, was, that the dicta in, in Roberts points to, the Allen line of cases where, again, we read things into statutes to make them more effective. And applying Sandoval, again, there's no unambiguously conferred right here. Um, so for that reason, you can't really rely, they can't really rely on Morse. So that's, that's all the precedential arguments. Next, on the text itself, I, you know, I, I think their argument on the text falls apart first and foremost because Section 2, on its face, doesn't provide a right of action. That's the express question. It, it doesn't provide one. So they have to go looking elsewhere. And they look to Sections 3 and 14 primarily to find that right of action. That really fails for two reasons, or two principal reasons. First, on the text... Sections 3 and 14 only apply to proceedings under any statute to enforce the voting guarantees of the 14th and 15th Amendment. Section 2 suits don't do that. Instead, lawsuits like this, they seek to enforce Section 2's prophylactic disparate impact regime, not the Constitution itself. And just last term in Vega, I think the Supreme Court highlighted the the critical difference here. where where the Supreme Court held that you couldn't enforce Miranda under Section 1983. And what the Court explained is that there's a fundamental difference between violating the Constitution and violating a prophylactic measure that goes beyond the Constitution in order to protect constitutional rights. I don't disagree that Section 2 was designed to protect constitutional rights, but it goes beyond the Constitution, and they are not the same thing, just like Miranda is not the same thing as the Fifth Amendment. Counsel,
3: would would you address the uh, appellant's a ratification argument that essentially Congress has had decades to clarify its intent with respect to Section 2 and has never provided any indication that it had not approved or intended to have a private right of action.
5: I would read that the the other way, Your Honor. I would say that Congress has left this as an open issue and and Congress has never said that there is a private right of action. The standard is not, did Congress not say there's a private right of action. The standard is, did Congress unambiguously confer a private right of action? So I I don't think that you can take congressional silence in the face of Bolden's explicitly reserving the question to be ratification. They make sort of, as I understand plaintiff's argument, They make kind of two different ratification arguments. The the first argument is is somehow the 1975 amendments, which added the aggrieved person language in Section 3, somehow ratified a private right of action, even though the court later reserved that question in Bolden in 1980, five years later. And then in 1982, when Congress is specifically addressing um, amendments to Section 2, Congress didn't make any changes in the text to address the private right of action question in Section 1982's text. Instead, the only thing they did in 82 was expand the scope of liability under Section 2. Now, I understand they cite fractured committee reports, legislative history to say um, Congress was meaning to cre- create a private right of action, but there are two fundamental things there. One, the committee report that they're primarily relying on is backward-looking legislative history. It's a committee report that says, we now, in 1982, think in 1965 that Congress meant to include a private right of action. That's, not, that's the worst kind of legislative history. Um, The Supreme Court has told us repeatedly you can't rely on subsequent statements by a later Congress to interpret what an earlier Congress said when the earlier Congress said nothing about it. I'd also highlight that that committee report doesn't point to any actual language in Section 2 or elsewhere in the VRA that would purport to codify that intention. In addition to that, the, the, the mere fact that the committee reports are addressing Bolden in um, explicitly dealing with it shows Congress was well aware of this question about whether or not Section 2 was privately enforceable, but chose not to do anything about it. You know, it, they want to read that as meaning, well, Congress just decided it would be privately enforceable because Congress didn't do anything about it. I think when confronted with the, with the court saying we're not sure whether there's a private right of action, it was an imp- the impetus was on Congress to say something to clarify that. We don't normally ratify changes in statutes by silence. Uh, that's an unusual argument to be making.
3: Counsel, would, would you address the waiver concern that uh, uh, is, has been posed that our precedents seem to indicate, uh, at least in, in large measure, that the absence of a cause of action is is not jurisdictional?
5: Well, I would say I do think it's jurisdictional. It's jurisdictional under cross. But that having been said, I don't really know that that plays a factor in the analysis because I think as, as um, you were asking my friend from the United States, at the end of the day, the district court raised it and the district court gave the other side notice. In fact, held a very lengthy oral argument hearing, gave them the opportunity to file a number of briefs on this issue and they had plenty of opportunity to address it. Um, so I I don't really understand the, the argument that somehow they didn't have an opportunity to respond to it. Um, and district courts do have, in this circuit at least, the ability to raise those issues a sponte and dismiss on those grounds. I think it's Smith versus Boyd, um, an Eighth Circuit case that says that as long as it's raised, they get advance notice, which they certainly got here—an opportunity to argue it and brief it. Um, given that, um, you know, they, they were given an opportunity to respond to it. I, I would also add that at the end of the day, you know, it. it really wouldn't amount to very much at the end because we, we obviously haven't given it up for purposes of the final merits. Um, as Judge Strass pointed out, it was essentially a preliminary injunction hearing, and as I'm sure your honors know, in the course of preliminary injunction hearings, things are moving very fast. The one thing I would highlight is, you know, our view very early on in that hearing, we focused on the Purcell argument um, because it was very clear we were too close to an election, so that's where we chose to focus our, our time. Um, but you know this is an issue that the district court was entitled to raise. Both sides were given an opportunity to address it and brief it. Um, so I, I, I don't really understand the argument that somehow they were denied the opportunity to address it, or even worse, that somehow they didn't have an opportunity to ask for amendment an amendment um, to replete under 1983. Which, by the way, on that point I would add, they chose to pursue an appeal. They didn't ask the district court for the right to amend under Section 1983. They remain free to do that today. They could file a new lawsuit citing Section 1983. Now, I think they would lose that lawsuit because I don't think they can actually bring a lawsuit under Section 1983, primarily because I don't think that Section 2 even even vests a private right. This is one point where I would disagree with, with um, Judge Strauss's question earlier. The reason why I don't think it actually confers a private right is because it's not focused on the individual voter. The language, or what we look at in Section 2, is is focused instead on the minority group and the minority group's preferences for particular candidates, not on the individual voter. And the way I would illustrate that best, I think, is if we look at where the court has found individual rights under Section 5 and Section 10 and contrast that with Section 2. So whereas 2 is focused much more on the group, Section 5 and 10 are focused on the individual voter, things that affect the individual voter voter by voter that would deny them the franchise. So, for instance, Section 5 talks about um, being unable to vote or being required to comply with unprecleared laws in order to exercise the franchise. That's something that affects the individual voter. Voter by voter, you're required to comply with something in order to vote that you shouldn't be. It's an individual right that would affect that voter's franchise individually. Same idea for Section 10. Not being required to pay a poll tax in order to exercise the franchise. It affects that individual voter. That individual voter can assess it, and it impacts them directly. That is very different from Section 2. Section 2 is, again, focused on the group or the aggregate. It's the type of thing that an individual voter cannot assess, and it doesn't affect them individual by individual. You know, I would highlight the fact that cases like this don't even tend to be brought, to the extent private cases are brought, by individuals. They're brought by organizations. And that really highlights just how different this is from what we typically think of as an individual right. So I don't think it would be actionable under Section 1983.
1: Well, it seems the statute disagrees with you because it uses the word right. I mean, it, it says the denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen in the United States to vote on account of race or color. That would seem to at least recognize there's a right.
5: Well, I think that's the language in section A, but then you get section B subsection B. It says in A as provi- I think the language is as provided in subsection
1: yeah.
5: B. Yep. Um, and, and the language in B is much more aggregate-focused, and the way courts have treated this, whether we're talking about the Supreme Court or, or district courts, have treated this as an aggregate right, something that you can only assess in the aggregate. So like, something like vote dilution, I, I'm not sure how one would measure vote dilution on an individual level, uh, vote dilution is, is measured in the aggregate. That's the only way you could determine vote dilution, and I think that highlights that, that it is not an individual right. You know, I don't think for – I recognize that that is in some sense a more – I'll, I'll agree that's a more difficult question than the, the private right of action question or the remedy question because they don't have any – again, they don't have any cases that they can point to on the private cause of action, and there's nothing in the text that that supports them. You know, we talked a little bit about the the, the – text of 3 and 14, but I'd also add that even if you rejected that argument, although I, I agree with the district court that's that's the reason why those statutes don't apply to section 2, I also would point out that sections 3 and 14 do not confer causes of action. There's nothing in the language of those provisions that, that actually confers or could be read to confer a cause of action. Instead, there are they're just assuming that because there are causes of action under any statute to enforce the voting guarantees, um, somehow that means that Section 2 or the entirety of the VRA is enforceable. That's not the way we normally read that language. I think as the Supreme Court told us in Stone Ridge, for instance, um, a case under the Securities and Exchange Act where Congress created a regime governing any action under the Securities and Exchange Act, the court said that language, the the Congress's recognition of certain procedures under the Securities and Exchange Act didn't make everything in the Securities and Exchange Act suddenly privately enforceable. Instead, under Sandoval you need something much more specific than that. You know, I recognize there is a sort of gap between express and implied, but you're gonna need something much more specific than what we have here. Um, and I think indeed Sandoval it was section six oh one was discussed earlier. That's you know, Sandoval recognizes a private right of action under 601, but the way that Sandoval got there was to say the court had had interpreted identical identical um, language under Title IX as providing a private right of action, and then Congress abrogated sovereign immunity for purposes of Title Six, and the court said based on those two things there we're going to suggest that there's a private right of action for purposes of 601. That's the kind of specificity that I think is probably required, and I think the, the reason why that's probably the case is because they can't cite a case, they haven't cited a case post-Sandoval recognizing a private right of action for the very first time, post-Sandoval. Instead, the cases that we've relied on in, in this court, both sides, are cases that reject that. Stone Ridge under the Securities and Exchange Act um, and um, Armstrong are the, the two cases the, the parties have cited, and the court refused to create private rights of action for the first time. So I, I, I think, Your Honor, uh, or Your Honors, in, in conclusion, at the end of the day, this is an open question much like, and that's the reason why Justice Gore system, Justice Thomas, have, have raised it. It remained an open question after Bolden. The court didn't return to it, and they don't point to anything in the text that provides a private right of action. So they ultimately, their argument almost is you have to imply a private right of action in order to make what Congress said more effective. But the court long ago disregarded the idea that it was the appropriate role of courts to read things into statutes in order to make the language that Congress wrote more effective than what Congress actually wrote. I'd also add their argument that the government somehow lacks the resources to to enforce Section 2. They don't really cite any basis for that. Indeed, the government's here today, and I think that highlights that the government does have the resources. Um, The government may bring fewer cases, but as the amicus filings in support of us highlight, many section two cases the overwhelming majority never reach a final judgment and are unmeritorious so there may be fewer but there's no reason to believe that the government wouldn't bring meritorious section two claims unless there are any questions
3: i see none Thank thank you mr brown ms lakin your rebuttal
0: Thank you, Your Honor. Um, with respect to the question of whether a Section 2 action is a proceeding to enforce the voting guarantees, I'd like to point to the fact that even Justice Thomas and Morse agreed that uh, this applies to Section 5, which is like Section 2 um prohibits conduct that is broader than uh, the direct violations of the Constitution. And and saying that this would apply to Section 5 but not Section 2 would create discordance in the language. I'd also add that the ratification argument that we um, have made includes 2006. This 2006 ratification when Congress was certainly aware of Morse, the pronouncement in Morse, whether it's dicta or not, the decades of cases brought by Section 2 plaintiffs, and yet not once did it decide to correct um, that what would be a, a misunderstanding of that proportions. The district court is wrong at, on at least one thing. It's either wrong on jurisdiction, that's what the decades of precedence show us, or it's wrong on the merits. The court should reverse.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Lakin. court thanks all counsel for your presence and participation in argument before the court In supplementation to the briefing that's been submitted. We will continue to study the case and render decisions promptly as we can. Thank you.